Well, ladies and gentlemen, very warm uh, welcome uh, to this, uh, the latest in the LSE European Institute APCO Worldwide uh, series of public lectures entitled Perspectives on Europe, uh, which we are co-organizing um, today uh, with the LSE Chair in Contemporary Turkish Studies. And I think we've got the, the makings here of a really fascinating 90-odd uh, minutes, uh, or perhaps just under, in the company of Professor Norman Stone, uh, now at Bill Kent University in Ankara, of course, but formerly uh, at, uh, and formerly at uh, Oxford University, and before that, uh, before being professor at Oxford, he was at Cambridge. Um, so we're delighted to welcome Norman Stone uh, on the occasion of the launch of his latest book, uh, copies of which you've probably seen, um, uh, Turkey, A Short History, uh, to copies of which are on sale outside uh, this theatre, uh, and I know that uh, Professor Stone will be very happy to sign copies uh, afterwards. Now, of course, it's, it's customary and courteous uh, to praise our, our guest speakers as amongst the most distinguished scholars and experts in their field, and uh, Professor Stone will be relieved to hear that I have no intention of departing from that practice, not least because I think I can utter such praise without fear of contradiction. Um, in fact, Norman Stone had acquired a large uh, reading public, not least amongst uh, school and university uh, students, um, uh, with his writings on the origins of the First World War, um, many, many years before television had started to project the past into our drawing rooms on the almost daily basis which it does now in this era of TV history. Uh, and through his journalism, um, particularly um, in the Sunday Times, but also many other organs, and his other various polemical interventions, uh, and his advisory role uh, with Margaret Thatcher, uh, Norman Stone had been, a, in a sense, a, a public intellectual well before that rather un-British idea had taken off in this country, and, of course, well before the label had acquired uh, some of its uh, more self-satisfied and politically correct overtones. Uh, and no one, I think, would accuse Norman Stone of political correctness. Uh, now, no doubt some of you will have read his penultimate book, amongst the many books, excellent books he's written. This was published, I think, about this time last year, The Atlantic and Its Enemies, uh, A Personal History of the Cold War. Uh, it's a real cornucopia uh, of a book, uh, described as a blend of grand narrative and autobiographical uh, vignettes, and it was fulsomely received and I certainly commend it to my own students, our own students here in my course on the West. But of course, we're here today to hear from Norman Stone about his new book on Turkey. Uh, and I think its publication is more, it's more timely uh, than ever as the EU struggles uh, with a patently, its patently diminishing enthusiasm um, to take a view, uh, as it struggles to take a view on Turkey's European credentials. And as Turkey begins to translate its growing economic power its greater economic strength into greater regional power uh, and a more assertive international role generally. And of course, this certainly provides valuable opportunities from a European and Western perspective, but also its fair share of anxious moments for Western leaders. So to understand how Turkey uh, and Europe have got to this existential point, um, I suggest we can do no better than read Norman Stone's uh, fascinating and very pacily written uh, short story of his uh, short volume of history. It benefits not only from his usual methodological rigor and wordcraft, um, 
the things that we've come to associate with him, uh, him uh, in his writings, but also from the knowledge which he's built up in the last 14 years or so in which he has been sort of co-located, co-resident uh, in Turkey, um, where I should perhaps also mention that he's uh, also been teaching at Koch University and Boazici as well as uh, Bill Kent. So as per our usual format, uh, we will leave a good amount of time at the end for questions uh, from yourselves, and I'm sure you won't be shy in coming forward with those. I know that Norman looks forward to fielding those uh, with alacrity. So Norman, you're, the floor is yours. Thank you for those kind remarks. Uh, I ought possibly to say why, um, why Turkey, because it maybe needs some explanation. I was originally a Central European historian, moved on, generated to Russia, and I was counting on doing some work in Russia, and uh, uh, one way or another, uh, thought of taking early retirement from Oxford, and. Um, then got an invitation to a conference about the Balkans in Ankara, in Bill Kent. And uh, uh, there was something about the place I liked at once. Um, I might as well explain what it is. Uh, it's a poor old Ankara. It's, uh, it's not the most attractive of towns. Um, it started off as a, a castle on a hill, that castle fell into disrepair, was repaired, was never actually besieged um, because the town collapsed before it could get besieged, but everybody built it up. And you look at the walls and there are bits of upside-down Roman pillars and then something Selchuk and so on. And now there are gypsies in the ruins and um, uh, there's a place that Tramp lives in a cave on which there is marked um, Imperator Julius de Mare Britannico and so on. And it got built up as a modern town by German architects uh, and then got invaded by uh, migrant tribes. And it is, to be frank, uh, as a sort of Canberra, which has been hit by a tidal wave marked love from Bangladesh. <laughs> and you, you go out of the foreign ministry guest place into a kebabs and Islamic women driving their broods. And people said to me, why is it you're the only foreigner who never complains about Ankara? And I said this, you must understand about me that I am a Scotsman. When I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror, and deep inside of me I know I am a Scotsman. And I feel entirely at home in an enlightenment that failed. <laughs> so, now, it, it worked very well from the moment go, did um, Ankara, and the rector said, well, would I go there, and I thought, well, what an interesting idea, and went. It's, that was hmm, 16 years ago. I've been back here a good deal, but uh, learned the language, I won't say terribly well. It's not easy, because the Turks nowadays speak very, very good English. Even taxi drivers in Ankara say to me, OK. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> It's a challenge. Educated people in Istanbul do understand that it's a problem for foreigners and they will laboriously speak it to me. Uh, but there we are. I've gone quite heavily native and it's been a lot of fun. Now, uh, 
Forgive me, I may have difficulty reading. I've got, um, I have to read, but it's short sight, not long sight, so it's, these are rather difficult bifocals. Um, now, uh, talking about Turkey and Europe, um, well, this would not have been my choice of subject um, because Europe has been talked into the ground. There are various ways of talking about it. I'm afraid all of them deeply boring. <laughs> and, uh, so I'll have, to do, I'll have to do my best about this. Um, now, there are <laughs> varying ways of um, doing this, talking about Turkey and Europe. And the wisest thing that I've ever heard on this subject was a German diplomat who said, there are good reasons for saying no to Turkey and Europe, and there are bad reasons. And uh, that's one way of doing it. I'm not going to talk about either. Uh, I won't attempt either to deal with the various chapters. Poor old Turkish diplomats. Can you imagine uh, some Finnish woman this morning looking like the worst kind of Protestant small country, meaningless, meaningless preacher woman? There are many of those in my soon-to-be independent Scotland, and when it becomes independent, I become a Turkish citizen. <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> this woman preaches to the Turks, who after all have, to have a terrorist war on their hands, how to carry out justice. Now, there are ways of dealing with these Europe and the assorted chapters. What a nightmare for everybody over all concerned. It's not the way to deal with Turkey and Europe. What um, <coughs> I've actually read parts of the European Constitution. Has anybody in this room, political scientists included, read the European Constitution? I have, at least part of it. Um, it's, uh, the end of it discusses, at some length, the rights of the Sami, which otherwise known as the Laps, in Finland, matter of great European concern. And so that is one way of dealing with Turkey and Europe. I cannot deal with it in that way. Um, <clears throat> and I wouldn't either want to be involved in all these windy arguments about European values. Um, the European values, uh, well, you know, windier you cannot get than talk about Europe and the traditions of liberty. There aren't any. <laughs> there, there is one democracy in, in, um, in Switzerland which, which is earlier than anybody's and it excluded women until 1978. Um, so let us not get onto this windy level either. <clears throat> now we can, what we are really talking about and what is the serious point and what everybody knows about Turkey and everybody understands about Turkey is the simple word westernization. And it's that that I'd like to talk about. When the, when the question first came up of Turkey in Europe, it, was, uh, it, it came up in 1963 at a time when Europe was not the detailed chapter-ridden, um, hag-ridden thing that it subsequently became. It was just, uh, you know, it was just you know, a few clauses indicating um, the approach to a common market, and that was more or less it. There was the uh, European Court of Human Rights, was it, which was, again, very limited in scope, and 
Turkey was automatically included in that Europe, and given the go-ahead in 1963, uh, some years beforehand, the Germans had done an agreement about Turkish migrants, and it was expected that those who didn't assimilate would go home. No idea that a generation or two down the line there would be three million uh, partly unassailable, unassailable Turks and Kurds sitting in Germany. Turkey had been roped into NATO. That went without... There was a bit of opposition from Norway, I remember, but I don't think there was much more. It was just thought automatic that it would be part of the West. And in the, you know, in, the, in the Ataturk years, Turkey had been very popular. I can remember growing up as a boy in the, in, um, in the later 40s, early 50s. There were, uh, there were you know, Turkish books on my great-aunt's shelves. There was The Fisherman of Halicarnassus. Uh, the wonderful little book by uh, Irian Orfa, uh, or, uh, Irfan Orya called uh, A Turkish Family, which was a bestseller in England in the early 50s. And you know, wasn't anything particularly remarkable about Turkey, and it was associated with Europe as a matter of course. Everybody, I mean, it's maybe strange to look back on it, maybe it's naive, but everybody rather hero-worshipped Ataturk. He, um, I've got on my shelves in, in uh, Ankara um, a book by the, the memoirs of uh, Lord Birdwood, Birdwood who was at Gallipoli, and he was best mates with Rauf Orbay, who was Ataturk, the Turkish ambassador in England during the war. And uh, I bought that book, signed by Birdwood, from, um, from Enver Pasha's granddaughter, who's, uh, who runs a shop in, um, of old things in Istanbul. And uh, Tur Turkey was very well looked at, very naively, I suppose. But Rose Macaulay said... Uh, so many people come here to write their Turkey book, and they would rather gush. And it's possible to gush about, you know, irrigation projects and uh, children becoming literate and all the other sort of five-year plan stuff. Incidentally, Turkey is now in the 14th five-year plan. I wonder who on earth notices, apart from me, but it is. Now, that kind of progress goes on, and everybody said... Uh, Westernization in Turkey is working. And that old book by Patrick Kinross on Ataturk is still, I think, the best introduction to the country. Um, of course, it's way out of date, and it was probably out of date at the time. But still, it's a good book and a good introduction to the country. Now then, Turkey starts going off the rails. And again, I can dimly remember it, uh, it's, and it's in 1960 when there was a military coup. Now, modern European countries don't have military coups, and they don't go on to hang the Prime Minister. And that's what happened. And that's the first point at which I think Turkey can be regarded as having somehow slipped out of the Western moorings. And so it, you come on to the world where... Uh, Midnight Express, a film which is regularly shown. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, all good films are bad films, um, starting with Braveheart. Uh, <laughs> 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 and, 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 um, the, uh, um, 
the um, Midnight Express, the Cyprus problem, uh, the business which had been completely forgotten about for a generation after 1915, the Armenian problem comes up in the later 1970s, quite why I'm not sure, and uh, uh, the uh, Turkish reputation went down. Now then, it also got what is a, a very sad accompaniment of enlightenments. It's a most peculiar business. You get enlightenments, marshes drained, medical improvements, literacy grows, all of that. And then somehow the children eat the parents. And there are in, because you get out of all that a popul uh, population growth which gr got out of control. In the 1970s, as President Demirel complained, we were adding to ourselves every year the population of Denmark. Now that is devastating. It means in Ankara it's just about possible because it is a rational city and not too many people could be squeezed onto that treeless plateau. Istanbul has grown to, you can't count, but it's probably something of the order of 15 million now. It's not Cairo, it hasn't gone that bad, but it's a terrific strain on the system. I think Istanbul's getting around it now, uh, but there's one city in Turkey where that demographic problem goes on and it is fantastically depressing and it's Diyarbakir, the, the chief town of the Kurdish area. A marvellous place, great gaunt basalt walls and if you go to the poor district, the, inside what they call the castle, the Kalichi, you see there children, ragged children in bunches of 40, uh, football team sized families I bumped into a wedding by accident more or less a hundred people there and desperately poor um, now that is uh, that is a great problem uh, still present it breeds terrorism on the one side and extreme religiosity on the other and that is I think the biggest problem that Turkey now has to face it's very difficult to understand the the books on the Kurdish question are are rather unsatisfactory. There's one brilliant one by a, a, a communist called Hamid Bozaslan. Others, although well-known, tend just to repeat each other and come up with legends. I get terribly angry when I hear people say the Kurds are an oppressed minority, um, that they're not allowed to speak their language and so on. And, and this is an old problem. Uh, and I think it's true to say that the Turkish state made mistakes in handling it because a lot of Kurds do feel that they're second-class citizens. On the other hand, there are not, there's not one Kurdish language. There's seven. The most highly developed, Kermansh, has 15,000 15, words. There's another one, Zazaja, which has less. They don't understand each other. Now, uh, you would really have to standardize the language uh, quite artificially and almost have an Ataturk state in order to turn any kind of Kurdistan in those circumstances into a reality. So the best way forward, which is taken by vast numbers of Kurds, 
is to move to Western and Central Turkey, where an awful lot of them prosper. Um, they, there are some who say, of course, Kurdish nationalists. There are many who remain in a rather harsher form of Islam. But, you know, there's a very strong case for the Turkish state's behavior that schools should teach in Turkish. The point I make about this, now I know I'm making enemies. The point I make about this is that um, supposing in the year of grace, 1707, when Scotland was joined to England, there had been a European community with Copenhagen criteria saying that you have to treat minorities in a certain way, I would no doubt now be talking Gaelic. It would be an artificial Gaelic, which wouldn't be understood by anybody other than ten people in my audience. I would be the drunk national poet, kept going by European subsidies. <laughs> and and uh, what sort of future is that for any, any people? It's much better to have uh, you know, these arguments are as old as the hills. At any rate, the Turkish state has, an argument, has arguments along these lines. But as time went by in the 1960s and 70s, up came the PKK, which is a vicious terrorist organization, uh, which killed school, school teachers, uh, targeted any kind of factories, chicken farms, and so on, and generally caused that Kurdish area in southeastern Turkey to be poorer than ever it needed to be. So Turkey got problems, and it got a military coup, none of which can be described as properly European. And they, um, then after 1980, there is a bit of a change. I won't go through statistics of prosperity, because it becomes awfully boring if you read out uh, <coughs> the, you know, the statistics of well-being. Um, the more so as in Turkey, I, sh I, I should think the statistics are quite unreliable. Um, in the first place, the thing is growing so fast that no one could really count it. In the next place is, I don't think, um, I don't think the counting machine has ever really worked. There was a marvellous moment in the, in the, just before the military coup in 1980 when the, uh, the, the, the chief planning commission sat in Ankara with its coats on because it was very cold and there was no heating. It was all lit by candles because there was no lighting. Outside there was the merry sound of machine gun fire as one lot of people massacred another lot of people in the Middle East Technical University. Um, and they were solemnly discussing statistics of barter trade um, for electric light bulbs against used plastic knickers or something of this kind in Nicaragua. <laughs> that was what it had been reduced to. Then comes the military coup, of which uh, I know there are different opinions. Uh, whatever you think of the military coup, it didn't... It wasn't expensive as these things go. It was much cleaner than the 1961. They didn't hang the Prime Minister. They let everybody go after a few years. They held an election very quickly. And the results, 20, 25 years down the line, 
are best shown, I think, in comparison with Russia. In Russia, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the average, ma average man died at 60. The health service had completely broken down. The uh, ecology of the place, illustrated by the, uh, by the emptying of the Sea of Aral. Russia was in a terrible state. Uh, and Turkey, which had started off far below the level of Tsarist Russia, had come ahead so far that there were actually two million Russian migrants in Turkey. Uh, there's less now because Russia has recovered. Um, now, some of, those, some of those migrants, Russians don't like me to say this, but some of those migrants were whores. Uh, the uh, Turkish word for a whore is orospu. Um, it's, it's 11th century Persian. And the middle bit of it is R-O-S, meaning Russia. <laughs> now, the Russian, they, these poor, they weren't all Russians. Some were Georgians or whatever, Ukrainians. Now, they arrived on the Black Sea coast, and that accounts for something which you might have found, if you found it, if you remember it, rather odd, the adultery law. The Turkish government wanted to, wanted to criminalize adultery. The Europeans jumped up and down. Secularist people jumped up and down. How can you do this, etc., etc.? Now, what was behind it was this. Those Russian girls arrive, or Ukrainians, in places like Riza and Hopa and Trapzon, and they hit traditional religious marriages. He 15, she 13, six children, she devotedly stirring the chocolate pot, he looking at the football results and bored out of his skull. Um, enter Mademoiselle Fifi, um, who is a harpy, uh, takes the family money and causes endless havoc. Now, you can't ban prostitution, but what you can do is ban adultery in the government's thinking. That's what was behind it. Now, Turkey had shot ahead uh, far and fast, and here we are, 2010 to 11, with um, an Islamic government. It's knocking at the door of Europe. It's got a decent level of prosperity for most of the country. The population business is rather under control. Where do we stand as far as Turkey and Europe's concerned? Now, <coughs> I don't want to take a view on the um, economic side. It seems to me idiotic for the Europeans to be insisting on a standardization of things in great detail for growing economies of this kind. It can't really be done. And that it's asinine to make your relations with Turkey dependent on something like Greek Cyprus is, uh, I think, goes without saying. Uh, Let's look at it uh, in, from the Turkish point of view. Is it necessarily to their advantage to join a Europe which has such tight rules, which might prevent all kinds of things happening in the place which would be desirable? China is not tied by European rules and is notoriously a great growing, growing thing at the moment. I leave these things more as questions because I'm not an expert on them. One thing I would like to say, and 
uh, that the, the Europeans are being, at the moment, um, almost comic about something which matters a great deal, and it's visas. And I had, uh, you know, I mentioned there are Turkish students here present, and not just Turkish, Russian, uh, who face the most extraordinary inquisition, documents that thick, which have to be supported by quite a lot of money, by a, by a mysterious process on the internet, uh, in order to get a visa. And uh, I mean, Dominic Leven, who's an old student of mine, whom I rang up and to complain about it, said that he had South Americans who'd had a year of their lives ruined by this process. Now, why the Europeans insist on this stupid thing when the Americans don't? You can get an American visa for 10 years uh, if you're obviously kosher, and, uh, but not the Europeans. And the reason is the Europeans will say, we have to treat everybody the same. Well, why? Not e it's obvious that not everybody's the same. Let through some and not let through others, it's obvious. But the Europeans are so rigid and they'll get themselves hated with this. Now, uh, regardless of whether Turkey joins Europe, I'd like, I think, to talk a bit about uh, what sort of westernization Turkey's had. It's, uh, and I've got two points to make. I want to talk a bit about the religion, since that's a matter which comes up. People say, uh, well, a friend of mine, um, Hassan Ali Karasar, who's now a nationalist candidate <laughs> in Kadikai, and I, I embarrass him by reminding him that he said this, Islam, politics, economics, choose two. <laughs> now, however, you, you have to look at this. Now, uh, it's ferociously difficult to talk about the history and sociology of religion. It's really the most difficult subject of all. And uh, <coughs> I wouldn't like to try to do it um, directly. You know, you can say that the Islam which, which uh, took over uh, from Byzantium was a very free and easy uh, Islam. The, the, uh, at the moment, there's something funny going on in Turkey. There's a soap about Suleiman the Magnificent. And it shows him as a lad of the village and having a drink or two. Well, we know the Ottoman court had, had before the harem, which was not the institution you expected it to be. But, you know, they had their women, they had their bottles. And uh, Islamics sometimes complained about it. And it was, uh, it, it was in those days, you could argue really that the, the Turks saved Byzantium. Byzantium was ruined by the Latins in 1204 and looted. It never recovered. Constantinople was the city of 50,000 in 1453. And they couldn't actually open the Hagia Sophia, the great church, because the Latins and the Orthodox fought. So it was closed until the very last moment when the Turks were at the gates. When they arrived, Mehmet Fatih, talking in Greek, said to the Orthodox Patriarch, uh, what do you want? And addressed him with the title you gave to the Byzantine Emperor, Megas Authentes, and it was all written down, and uh, the Patriarch became the greatest landowner in the empire, with, uh, which went on for a long time. 
And the Patriarchate was a, a, an office that everybody wanted. They were prepared to murder and bribe for it. So much so that according to Stephen Runciman, from 1453 to 1918, only four patriarchs died in office in their beds. Um, not only that, no, Turkish is a funny language. It's, it's got some remote relationship with Japanese. And you know how the Japanese, even now, uh, have difficulties in pronouncing L and R and so on. Now, the Turks in the old days had the same sort of problem. So when they heard a, a town in Cappadocia was called Prokopi, they turned it into Urgup. Or if it was a Zongoldak had some origin, some funny, or Sadraka, I think it was in Greek. Um, so when they heard the word authentes, they turned it into effendi. <laughs> they, they can pronounce things, of course, a little better now, but there is a Greek undercurrent, and at times an overcurrent, in the early Ottoman Empire, and it's nonsense to think that the Greeks were particularly oppressed. They did the oppressing of people like the Bulgarians on occasion, or the Romanians, but they weren't particularly oppressed. They were always there. And that's an element of Europe, uh, and not the only one, which uh, there was in Byzantium. I might mention the Armenians. You know, uh, one of the first books I read in Turkish was an old boy called Sadretin Pasha. I shouldn't say old boy, he's probably younger than me. Um, Sadretin, Sadretin Pasha, who was sent round by Abdul Hamid to uh, pacify the, the eastern Anatolia when there was a Kurdish-Armenian war going on. And he, um, uh, Sadetin Pasha, uh, met the Kurds and he said, listen, you can't go on like this oppressing the Armenians and stealing their sheep because the Europeans will hear about it in a hour by telegraph and they'll respond. And then he went to see the Armenians and he said, stop this nationalist nonsense. If it hadn't been for the Ottomans, you would have vanished like the original population of, of Anatolia, the Phrygians or the Lydians. And that's absolutely right, because in 1453, the Armenians were brought back to Istanbul, and they served the Ottoman state very well until the later 19th century. What happened was, of course, horrible. It's part of a, a parcel of the invasion of the Middle East by nationalism. And uh, <coughs> there it was. But to start off with, the Turks were... You know, they had these Christian European influences, benefited from them, got along perfectly well. So we have something with a vaguely European character on the edge of Europe doing well. And I'll end up with a, a parallel which struck me, I don't know quite how it was, it struck me fairly early on, um, and it's with uh, Spain. Uh, if you think uh, Spain, in the first place, the sort of Christianity which Spain got was from the, what's called the Arian heresy. And the Arian heresy says Jesus Christ is not God, he's man. A great prophet, but not God. You'll remember all these things in Gibbon about the various... Heresy. The best account of it, incidentally, I think, is in Stephen Runciman's Great Church in Exile, in Captivity. It's a wonderful account of it. 
Now, the Arian heresy flourishes in uh, Visigothic Spain and in the Balkans. It, uh, it, it's an underground heresy. Um, I, sorry, this is, a, this is a footnote, but I might as well give it to you. I think it's the origin of vegetarianism. Um, because the, the, it was the Arian heresy and the Bogomils later on they would not eat anything which was the product of, of, of the sexual act. Um, so vegetarianism is perhaps the last uh, outcome from the last outcome of the um, Albigensian Crusade, which is what dealt with it in the West. In the West, now the Arian heresy you start off with. Then come the Arabs and Islam for seven centuries, and it's the great period of Islam in Spain with interesting interruptions on which I'm not at all an expert, the caliphate in Spain. But its architecture is there all around. Then comes the Spanish Empire. And you have, uh, as with Turkey, uh, some kind of Balkan Aryan underground. And you have a world empire in Spain, a world empire in Turkey. The, the two fight. Now, the, it's galleons and ships, and ships eat up forests. It's very, very difficult to plan your afforestation if you're trying to build galleys at the same time, and 300 of them can sink in a single battle or get rotted or whatever. So there's deforestation. Now, it might have been caused by something else in the Mediterranean. Maybe it's a climate change, which we know about. Maybe it's strains of malaria. Whatever happens, it's these forests in Anatolia and in central Spain go. The thing gets taken over by sheep and goats. The economy declines. The Mediterranean, once the center of the world, becomes a sort of vast slum. And uh, doesn't really start recovering until the later 19th century, when you have things like air, uh, 20th century, when you have things like air conditioning. Imagine what difference that makes. So things spiral up again. Spain in the 19th century built railways with a view to overcoming the economic backwardness, took loans from the British, employed French engineers, hammered nails into this friable soil, um, put down rails which expand in the winter and, and, and contract in the summer. They bend, there are accidents, the trains go very slowly, debts build up, you can't afford to modernise the railways, you have to build factories to make spare parts which are already obsolete. And so the terrible nightmare goes on where it's from 300 miles from Madrid to Barcelona 20 years ago took something like 12 hours. The same was true of Turkey, not so badly. And it takes 10 hours to go from Ankara to Istanbul, a comparable distance. Now, as with Spain, when economic recovery happened with roads, Turkey got the same economic recovery. The economy grows. And who is, who is modernizing the Turkish railway? Spanish engineers. It's a good um, comment on that. Now, if you think of the history of Spain, the dead hand of the Catholic Church, 
It wasn't Galileo. I mean, Galileo wouldn't even have existed in Spain. Um, it, it, it's, uh, the, what, what happened in Spain was that in the reign of Philip IV, they decreed no foreign literature. So no foreign literature is allowed into Spain after 1630 or thereabouts. Uh, the ships were not able to benefit from Dutch shipping manuals. So when the Battle of Trafalgar happened, there are these obsolete ships, a good 130 of them, which are no match for the British ships. Just don't sail anything like as well. And about 90 of them, was it, were sunk, and about 20 survived. The then King of Spain, one of those Goya cretins, um, the then King of Spain struck a medal which was awarded to the Spanish captains whose ships had not been sunk. Now, similarly with Turkey, in 1583, the, religion, the religious were allowed, if this story is true, which I don't guarantee, you tell me, um, it's, uh, I think it's from you, <laughs> actually, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, there's an earthquake in 1583 and there were telescopes on a tower in Besiktas. Um, the ulema said to Murat IV, um, rock that bestrides the continents, we shouldn't be examining God's secrets by the telescopes. He has sent us an earthquake as a punishment. So the telescopes were taken away and Turkish navigation is never heard of again. The same sort of thing was done, in my opinion, rather more forgivably when they closed down the School of Mathematics. The ulema said to the, uh, to the, uh, to the then Sultan, look, um, 1739 I think it was, uh, that uh, the mathematicians are uh, acting as agents of the devil, probing God's secrets, right about right, and um, so that was closed down as well. So forget engineering for a generation or two. That is something which Spain and Turkey have got in common. Let's take something else, which is the importance of the army in both cases. Now, I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and I'm sorry if I sound like a militarist, but I have to be. Um, if you are dealing with the church, which is miseducating, if you're dealing with a civil service where uh, the right people and simply not getting ahead, and an economy which is spiralling down, people illiteracy which is growing, your only hope is to hand schools, especially engineering, to the army. The French did it with um, Louis XV when he set up things like the, like the very first of the Grandes Écoles, and Napoleon carried it on. <clears throat> if universities are in the grip of an ulemma of that sort, there's not much, for, much way forward but the army. Spain got it. And of course, it produced this awful Spanish civil war which they're just recovering from. The Turkish equivalent is really, in the end, the war of independence. And out of it, uh, a Franco state emerged, um, and a Turkish state, I would say, I shrink from comparing Franco and Ataturk because, apart from anything else, um, Ataturk was a man with a sense of chivalry and decency. And Franco, Franco was a cruel old brute. 
You know, if I read Paul Preston's biography of him, uh, or Anthony Beaver's marvellous account of the Spanish Civil War, you find that after the end of that war, he is, Franco's so determined to eradicate any kind of opposition that he would travel from the, the palace of Zarzuela to the centre of Madrid in his car, and he would sit in the back and he would sign death warrants. And he would try and um, you know, beat his own record at signing death warrants. And his record was 3,000 for one journey. Or he summoned one Luis Campanis, who was the Republican in charge of Catalonia, fled to Paris, was picked up by the Germans. Franco had him brought back and stood against a wall at the age of 75 and shot. Atatürk would never have done that kind of thing. But still, it is, uh, there is something in common between Spain and Turkey. And if Spain, with all the problems, you know, Catalans or Greeks, Basques or Kurds, with all these problems, if Spain is now successfully, give or take a few economic crises, part of Europe, then Turkey is on the way too. Thank you. Thank you for uh, a real, uh, a, a big dish of tasty morsels. Um, it was great fun and very stimulating. And uh, um, I think that your many observations and anecdotes uh, are bound to provoke uh, some, possibly some lively interventions. Uh, I'm going to do the normal boring chairs thing uh, of asking you to uh, say, put your hand up if you'd like to speak. Um, wait for the microphone to come round. Please say very briefly who you are, where you're from, and please, please keep it short and sweet, and don't try to smuggle the second question under the first question. Good. Who'd like to kick off? Lady there. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, Professor, so thank you for a very entertaining uh, talk. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, for whom is your new book written? Who is it addressed to? And what sort of new research has it got? Um, I, I'm always very impressed at the level of interest in Turkey in, that you find in, uh, in, uh, in this country. Uh, it's, a lot of people are very interested in it. And there are some very good books on, in English. You know, if you go down to, say, the Travelers Club, um, you find these wonderful books on the Ottoman Empire or or uh, modern Turkey. Very, very good. And I was really educated people wanting to know more on a, on a, on a flight to Istanbul, I think, defines it. Okay, who else needs another question? What about from the top? Anyone? Yes, Simon Glendale. Norman, uh, congratulations on your book, which uh, is excellent, and uh, uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly would be would be would be very good reading to recommend anybody taking uh, a flight to uh, Turkey. But uh, it's something that can be consumed at greater leisure as well, with great profit. Um, we face a potential disaster with Turkish accession to the EU, prospect of having years and years of negotiations and then suddenly the whole thing brought to an end by veto in a referendum in France or in Austria or somewhere else. And as we know, the French are committed to having a referendum on the subject. Um, and that, I fear, would poison relationships between Turkey and 
Europe for generations subsequently. Um, there is, uh, uh, one hears reports from time to time that the Turks themselves are responding to this prospect by becoming progressively less keen uh, on uh, accession and looking at other options. Can you say a word about that? Yes, I'm, 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 I'm not privy to the, to the secrets of the government, but it's, it's, uh, it's certainly obvious that there's much less enthusiasm now. They, uh, you know, they, I, th I think they had unrealistic expectations when the whole thing started and, that, and thought that it would be, it'd be easy. And then they, they, they rejected things which are, to be honest, quite reasonable, like, um, you know, a privileged partnership. And a privileged partnership means a, a, means a free trade area with relatively easy visas, which is all you want. Um, you don't want you don't want things like these dreadful Scandinavian droopy drawers coming along preaching at you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, uh, um, uh, you know, I think it's, it's the Turks were not, uh, were not were not without fault in the thing. Um, and then, of course, there is the again, it's a perfectly legitimate fear on the part of the of the um, of the Germans to say, look, we've got three million Turks. And, uh, you know, they're, they're a problem. I mean, I've been reading, I've read the, the Sad Scene book, and I don't know if you're aware of this, there's a, a, a prominent German, or a, a Berlin Social Democrat, it happens, who was, the finance, who was something to do with the Bundesbank, and Bank and was the finance director of Berlin, wrote a book about, uh, well, it's got the title, Germany is Abolishing Itself, um, by taking in the wrong sort of immigrants, and he goes to town in one of his chapters on the uh, on the um, lack of scholarly performance of uh, of Turks and uh, in, in Germany, and I mean it is a problem that that they're they're uh, they're not producing a middle class as much as they might have done. Uh, or, now, this, this, before you think of Saratzin as somebody who is, has got prejudices on this, um, a lot of Turks would say precisely the same thing, that, uh, that unless you go deep into the DNA of, uh, of certain parts of Turkey, you're not going to find that they're going to create a middle class. They're going to uh, reproducing the old Anatolian uh, patterns. And it is, you know, whether Saratzin is right or wrong, I mean, he gets the tone completely wrong. He'll irritate people simply by, by being dismissive and preachy. Um, but he's got a point, and it's, it has to be taken seriously. And so, uh, you know, if, if there are Europeans, not, I think, any, so much in this country at all, or Italy either, where they know Turks. Um, but if there are people in France and Germany who are, then it's a legitimate worry. And it would have been sensible for the Turks not to reject a privileged partnership, because that's what they should want. It's what I'd want. I mean, I keep saying, you know, if, they, if the Turks really want European membership, have ours. <laughs> <laughs> You had actually said to me just um, before that um, your, your, when I tested you in your Euroscepticism, you said you'd actually softened a little bit. Well, I have uh, because, yes, uh, yes, I have. I mean, <laughs> you know, when I, when I went to Turkey first, I, I was a bit dismissive about the Europeans, but it's, you, can see the, you can see the point of it in a place like Turkey. I mean, I mustn't talk too long about this, but um, I've got a spy in the European machine uh, in Ankara. Actually, it's a 
good boy who's here, Gupta Kara, who's very good. He's, he's now the European Commission's transport man in Ankara. And he says, the Europeans do this sort of thing. Turkish shipping is a racket. And, uh, and you know, badly built ships, they're expensive and they monopolize. The Europeans have come in and said uh, that they must have a thing called the cabotage trade. Now, if a European ship, a container ship, takes something to Mersin, then it should be allowed to go on to Adana to pick up another load, drop it off in Izmir, and then go home to Bari. That's the cabotage trade. But until the Europeans came along and said, that has to be done, the Turks were monopolizing it and doing it very inefficiently and expensively. Now it works perfectly well, and there's actually quite a good Turkish shipping industry. That's the sort of thing, I'm, you know, which the Europeans is positive. Thank you. Thank you to Lord Davis for his question. And now Simon Glendening. Thank you. Uh, Simon Glendening from the European Institute here. Uh, I'm not going to try and smuggle in a second question, but I am going to explicitly ask a question with two parts. Um, the first is, uh, to invite you to say something about how you see the development of the presence of Islam in uh, Turkish politics from through the history of modern Turkey from Ataturk to today and, and how you see the shifts um, best, how, how you think they're best understood and, and then to take that into what's going on in the Middle East today to, to whether you think there are as it were lessons for other countries about the way in which uh, state formations um, function, in your view, uh, in, in their best way in relation to an Islamic tradition? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure you know I've got the answer. Uh, it's on this one. Uh, you know, with Islam, now you see it, now you don't. It's a lot of the time you might think this present government came up because uh, it's the predecessor parties and lost the plot I and mean, they, they, uh, they, the, 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 there was an absurd inflation going on which they couldn't sort out a lot of corruption went on and um, the rise of the the, the rise of the, uh, the the nationalist parties rather odd and, and uh, it was divided, and so along comes uh, an Islamic party, which is, you know, it's been preached at by the German Christian Democrats, uh, and even by the, the the German Free Democrats. They have a good relationship with the with the present government, and um, they uh, they use religion as a you know pretty obvious sort of discipline, it's honest, and you know, it's, it's got a better reputation than its predecessors. Uh, I would say that the present Prime Minister ran a, a city like Istanbul, uh, which, which is phenomenally difficult to run. Um, you know, <laughs> my rubbish gets collected twice a day, in Oxford it's once a month. No, so <laughs> etc. And if you were given the difficulties of running that town, he's, the man did a jolly good job. They restored the the old European area. It's been restored incredibly fast and rather successfully. In my opinion, although you know opinions vary. Uh, 
So from that point of view, does it matter? Now, there's another point, which is the comparison with Christian democracy. Christian democracy now is, is a sort of harmless thing. It's not really Christian. It's not really, I mean, it's, it's Democrat, but is it meaningfully Christian? Uh, but Christian democracy was quite serious in the old days, and, uh, and it, it explains why Italy is coming off a hard, you know, so heavily communist, because the Christian Democrats took their stuff very seriously, couldn't get divorced in Italy, uh, and sort of heavy censorship and all this kind of thing. Um, and <coughs> you know, the, the, the objection to Catholicism is, I think, something which you can compare with the present-day objection to Islam, counter-Reformation Catholicism. You know, Max Weber in 1903 simply asked the question, why is it that the Catholics are backward, make a lot of children, are corrupt, uh, you know, can't run a show, etc., etc. In Bavaria, all the non-Catholic parties from the anti-Semitic uh, anti-Semitic ranters to the Jewish Democrats and the, and the Prussian Conservatives and absolutely everybody had a coalition uh, to stop the Catholics and lost by 1%. <laughs> and, and that's serious Bavarian Catholicism. Uh, and in that sense, the, there's nothing terribly new about, uh, about that kind of religion in politics. Uh, and it, in, in practice, it learned. Now, that's what we, we have to wait and see. Is it learning? Now, there are signs that it's getting a bit too big for its boots. It is, uh, you know, they, they are getting, they're, 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 uh, they've been very successful. And I think it's gone to their heads. And they are doing things now which uh, they should have been careful not to do. I mean, uh, you know, anybody could have told them that if you want to make a book sell, ban it. <laughs> and that's what they did. And they've, had, they've been interrogating journalists who are basically on their side. That's all signs of folie de grandeur, which is bound to go wrong. I think there, is, I think there are two parallels with the, this government. The most remote one is with Abdul Hamid in the 1880s and 1890s, very successful for a time, politicizing religion, and then falling apart round about 1900. And the other one closer is the experience of the Democrats in the 1950s, when again, they have a leaning towards religion, then preside over, you know, an economic free-for-all, and then crash with the military coup of 1960. What form at the end will take, I'm not sure. But it's not even clear that they'll win this election. Okay, we've got another ten minutes or so for questions. Thank you. Have I missed anyone on top? Uh, yes, the gentleman in the blue shirt. Is it on? Um, I've got two points can I want you, to can make. You say who you are. Okay, um, my name's Matthew Fulsham. Um, I'm also involved with a group called the Turkish Area Study Group. Um, and I'll give a quick plug because we have our symposium at Cambridge on Saturday at Emmanuel College. But Aside from that, I was quite surprised with your comment um, on about why Turkey would not want um, a privileged partnership. Um, I think if the people who know Turkey well um, understand it as a matter of um, being treated equally, um, and I think that's a pretty fundamental um, right as Turks see it, um, and you highlighted the visa problem, um, but it is about being treated um, equally. Um, so I think that's why they want full membership. The second point I want to make is your several analogies with Spain. Um, and the point I would make 
It took Spain 11 years to enter the EU after the fall of Franco. Um, Turkey has developed um, quite a lot in the 90s um, and in this decade too. And I think the question we should be asking, um, why has it taken so long after Turkey has made its transition um, from military dictatorships to um, democracy? Um, and I think the answer to that is partly in ignorance but also in prejudice. Um, which exists quite deeply with people like Sarkozy, um, and I think that is the heart of the real matter in terms of Turkey and the EU. Well, um, I mean, you might be right. Uh, it's, uh, but on the other hand, there are perfectly you know, real problems in it. Uh, and as my German diplomat said, there are good reasons and bad reasons for saying no. Uh, and don't forget that that, uh, what is it, something like 40% of the country is still working on the land. And there must be an awful lot of other people just commuting between, la uh, between town and country. Uh, and it's, um, I mean, that problem is, uh, you know, it exists in millions. And it's, 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 it's an extraordinary sight, is Turkish agriculture. You, if you go to Cappadocia, you come across one village where it's, it's sparkling clean roads, the men are working in the fields, the women are in the houses looking after the children and so on. Then you come to another place where it's the women who are working in the field, uh, the men who are lined up at the tea house gassing away, doing nothing, buildings are falling down, <laughs> there's no irrigation and so on and so forth. And then you carry on and you come to another biblical village. It's very rum, it's changing the way I mean, Spain was, say, 30 years ago. And, uh, and that is for Europe a big problem. There's no point in, uh, in, in pretending. And if you were to open the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the gates for migration or subsidies, then it might break what is, after all, in the end, not a terribly large budget. That sort of thing. And I couldn't really see why, they, why the Turks wouldn't just say, well, we accept that we're a much bigger problem than Spain. After all, it's 80 million as against Spain's 40 or 35 or something, and, and uh, it's, the dimensions are too big, I think, for, um, for an immediate answer to the European question. But so long, it's a big argument. Good. Any more, any more questions? Um, uh, okay, I will try and squeeze in two more. Uh, well, I suppose, are you serious? Okay. Uh, the gentleman there, uh, gentleman in black. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, from China and I'm doing comparative politics in the depa uh, government department in ISE. And uh, uh, my question is, uh, if I am the Chinese ambassador uh, in Turkey and I meet the Turkish uh, foreign, foreign minister and I propose to him that, hey, I feel frustrated f uh, by the Europeans that they don't treat you equally. So just come to us. and. Um, so that you can balance, you can become some, you know, something in between and benefit from both sides. Uh, so what will be your response to the Chinese ambassador's uh, suggestions? <laughs> well, well, do you know it already has happened. Um, the, uh, the, the, there was trouble with China over, and Turkey was missed off the guest list for the Hong Kong handover in 97. Um, you know why? It's because uh, the Turks were getting interested in what was happening to the Uyghurs. Uh, 
and to the, the Chinese Muslims, who are about 10%. And there, there are Chinese Muslim and Uyghur uh, emigres in, um, in Istanbul, and they were causing trouble. And the Chinese got very angry about it. Things have got better because there are a lot of this co cooperation over, you know, over all kinds of things as, as China grows, and the Turks are looking to that. I simply don't know the details, but my answer to the Chinese ambassador would be say yes. <laughs> okay, we've got time for perhaps one or even perhaps two more. Um, gentlemen, yes, in the blue tie. Hi, Norman. Uh, Tamer from uh, Tamer Seno from LSC. Um, knowing your interest in the subject, uh, as well as your expertise in both countries, I can't help by ask, uh, but ask the question about the relations uh, that Turkey has been developing with Russia over the last few years. I mean, these were mostly based on economic uh, factors, and some people would uh, rather view it as a temporary, uh, you know, alliance of uh, convenience as long as Russia has available oil and gas uh, to, to send over to Turkey. Do you see this tr relationship transforming in the long term into a genuine um, relationship uh, both at political and social levels? Um, yes, and the, the, uh, the reasons Turkey had for, uh, for uh, enmity with Russia uh, have now gone. The, there's no military border, no military threat anymore, far from it. Uh, the, uh, there were in the old days uh, disagreements about, well, more than disagreements about um, uh, Turkey's support for the Chechens and Russia's support for the Kurds. And that is still, that still vestigially exists. But at the moment, the cooperation on both sides, and which has the effect of putting down very nasty attacks on both of them, is, uh, is pretty positive. And the growth of Turkish trade with, with Russia, you know, that, that changes the whole thing. Uh, you know, in, in 1922, when they kicked off, Turkey didn't have anything to sell to Russia at all, nothing. Now, uh, Turkish construction firms are absolutely all over the place. They actually built the Russian, uh, you know, the, the Russian White House in um, in Moscow, and the headquarters of Gazprom, all sorts of things, and uh, those factories all around the in, the in the industrial districts of Moscow, and that 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 really transforms the relationship in the end. So. Uh, I can't see any particular reason for hostility of any kind now between Russia and Turkey. Um, so long as the Russians are, don't get it into their heads that they have to take over the southern Caucasus again. And that would be an absolute disaster. It was absolutely uncalled for, and I don't think any Russian would want, really want to do it. I think the North Caucasus is quite enough. <laughs> no, we've got just a couple, a couple of minutes left. I mean, the dog so far in the discussion, it seems to me the dog that hasn't barked is uh, Turkey's growing role and influence and aspirations in, the, in, in the, its immediate region in the Middle East. And I just wonder whether you want to say anything yes, about yes, Turkey's, uh, it's a Simon's point as well. Well, I mean, I think, the, I think the Tur Turkish model thing is, is vastly overdone. And the poor, the, you know, the Afghans and the Iranians tried to do it in the 1930s, and, and it's sad to see the record of uh, especially Afghanistan, 
coming to uh, sending its uh, people to Ankara to learn how it's done. And I mean, the, the Turks had they had a good 80 years, or even more, if you you know if you assume that the late Ottoman Empire, the Young Turks were into it. They've they've been at this for a very long time. It's not something which you can do overnight. Next thing is that, that the sort of Islam you get in Turkey is not. It just hasn't got that fanatical quality, and, uh, and uh, it, it splits up into Sufi orders, and and uh, they don't get on with each other, and and the the um, some of them support the liberal state, and whereas I don't think that would necessarily be true of of, uh, of North Africa. Although I must be honest, I don't really know about North Africa. Mm. I'm, I'm straying way beyond what uh, you know what I, I know about. Um, and uh, right, this Arab 1848, what it looks like, doesn't it? Is it going to peter out by June, as you know, 1848 did? Uh, and that might be the problem with it. But as I say, I, do you mind if I say I don't know? <laughs> so, well, before we thank Professor Stead for a wonderfully uh, rich and textured talk, I'm invited um, uh, to draw your attention to the 22nd Spring Symposium of the Turkish Area Study Group, which I think the gentleman up there mentioned, which is taking place this Saturday at Amanda College, Cambridge, uh, a day of uh, what looks like very interesting sessions. I believe there's a mention on the web website. I mean, people who are interested can still register and have a look on that. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Um, Norman, thank you for a tremendous hour and a half that you've given us. Uh, as I say, a wonderfully rich uh, talk and splendid answers to questions as well. Love to have you back soon. Wish you success with the book. Uh, to remind you, um, opportunity not just to buy the book, but to have it signed by Professor Norman Stone immediately afterwards. Um, you might like to let him just leave the stone, unless any of you particularly want to, and grab him. But please don't keep him too long. He's got to do some signing, and then he's got to go on afterwards to do something else. Uh, thank you very much.